We are live. Uh, I don't know if Shane, are you going to be joining us today or if I'll just go ahead and introduce the chat? Go ahead, man. Go for it. All righty. Have a good one. Uh, so I'll go ahead and introduce Matthew Gates. I was going to make a joke about like names and Mithrandir, but I don't have the time. Anyways, I'm Matthew Gates. I'm a, I'm a pretty big nerd. And when it comes to uh, nerdy stuff, the biggest thing that I'm interested in is uh, phytopathology. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. You can find my content, much of it regarding pests and cannabis space um, on YouTube channel Xenthanol and on the Instagram uh, channel at Syncangel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. I'm really happy to be on the show this week. Thank you for joining us. And for those who don't already know, this is a live podcast. It's called Growing with My Fellow Growers. It's a production of the Chief Home Grow. Next up, we have Can Can Grow. Hey, yeah. How, how you doing? Glad to be uh, on with the panel again. What's up to the chat? I'm Can Can Grow, and uh, I'm looking forward to this episode. Alrighty, next up we got Spartan Grown. Hello everybody, I'm Spartan Grown. You can follow me, follow along with my home grow uh, up here in Michigan at Spartan Grown on Instagram or at work at the Commercial Grow. Uh, well, it's going to soon to be Rec Grow, which is uh, Mitten Canico on Instagram too. Both uh, awesome grows, I can say from firsthand looking at both pages, both grow the fire. So shout out to you and your crew. Uh, next up, we got another dude to grow some fire, Russ Brandon. How you doing, man? Going on, everybody. Uh, this is Brandon Rust. You can find um you can find me on Instagram at rust.brandon. I'm the cultivation director for Majestic Craft Cannabis in Oklahoma, and I own a biofertilizer company called Bokashi Earthworks. You can find the links to those in my bio on Instagram. It's good to be here as always. It's a pleasure being able to get together with everybody on Sunday and talk about weed stuff. Well, thanks for coming. I know you're busy over there with Harvest and working your butt off long hours, and uh, we really appreciate your time and you showing up for us uh, here this week for however long you can hang out. I want to give a big shout-out to the chat. The first two people that showed up, Cade Armstrong and Purple Thumb OG. I see them in so many different chats. They're like the ultimate weed nerds is in my book, you know, they're just in every single chat. So shout out to them. Shout out to everybody else who's already here. The 12 viewers that we've got next up, we've got another uh, big cannabis fan, uh, a guy that I appreciate his time as well. Uh, Tao, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey everyone. I'm the American one on IG. At, well, the American one with the Keens on IG and uh, the American one on YouTube. I'm glad to be here. Um, hope everybody's safe and uh, healthy and, uh, yeah, let's uh let's talk about some cannabis. You know what? Actually, shout out to Purple Thumb OG also, especially because you checked out a bunch of my videos lately too. So I really appreciate that feedback you got. Much respect, and also Sour Diesel Tangy and uh, Baked Pone, uh, Dank Man Dan. Thank you all for showing up so early to the chat. Next up, we got Noah the Grower. Go ahead and introduce yourself, bud. How's it going, everybody? Um, on Instagram, I'm Noah the Grower, and uh, you can follow me here on uh, Cheap Home Grow Show or uh, Grow with My Fellow Growers. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. How's it going, everybody? I'm doing well, uh, all things considered. I think uh, we'll try and keep it positive and talk about growing as much as we can today because I think that's what most people are here for and want to be entertained by. So, a little bit before we came online, 
Spartan Grown had mentioned uh, why he found out that paint sprayers are maybe not the best way to apply uh, certain foliar applications. And we were talking about a video we watched on the Future Cannabis Project and maybe some other alternatives. And Brandon Rust had mentioned he's got a pretty cool uh, sprayer that he liked. So I wanted to give him an opportunity to maybe talk about that. And then maybe Spartan Grown could talk about the importance of like uh, droplet size and things like that and evenly mixing the uh, foliar sprays. Go ahead, Brandon, before uh, I know we may only have limited time with you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so at my facility, it's pretty large. So um, I've never, I've never, I don't have any experience with paint sprayers. Uh, typically on a small scale, I would use uh, a, a pump sprayer. Um, but I actually have an agricultural sp uh, sprayer that's meant for application for, you know, applying to a plant canopy and it's just a like it's a ryobi four gallon electric sprayer and you know it's you can i use it for like spraying enzymes the uh, amazing doctor enzymes i use it for uh an occasional um foiler feed of uh, like agsil 16 which is potassium silicate uh, I use it for the bionutrient that I make for my company, Bokashi Earthworks, as a foiler. Um, and it works really well. It doesn't clog, and it's electric, so it has a rechargeable battery that just goes in the back just like a, like a, you know, a drill, a cordless drill. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to use. Just strap it on and, and go. Uh, and, and it has a small particle size, so it gets a, like a kind of a fine, a real fine mist. Um, that gives a really good coverage and I can get on the underside and uh, overside of the, the, of the plant uh, leaf surface really well. And uh, Spartan, did you want to maybe help disseminate some of that good information that you've extracted from some of those uh, recent videos? Yeah, I, I'd always heard that. Um, well, actually back it up all the way to the regenerative con con conference of last year. Uh, the first time I'd heard anybody um, with a negative opinion about paint using paint sprayers for spraying anything uh, as far as on foliar was uh, Suzanne Wainwright Evans, the bug lady. So, uh, but she never got into it. You know, her, she's got that uh, attitude where she's kind of like a scolding, like she's scolding a child kind of a thing, but she doesn't really give you the why. And then recently on that video, they got into it pretty deep and there was a lot of good reasons for one, there's no agitation in the tank. So you could be having, I mean, like what Brandon brought up, you know, a, a home garden situation, you can shake the bottle, you know what I mean? But paint sprayers in a five gallon bucket, you, generally people aren't going over agitating that bucket as often as what they ought to be. So the concentrations could be off throughout the spray. Also, um, the way a paint sprayer is designed, it's, it's, it's using gravity for, um, to help it spread to help it get that spread. So what I mean by that is, is like a 2D wall, you spray it out towards the top of the wall, it drips down to kind of fill in any spaces that it didn't hit. So um, gravity kind of helps. Well, when it comes to a plant, it's not a 2D surface anymore. It's not a flat surface. It's got nooks and crannies and everything else. So um, using a tool that's designed to cover a 2D surface well doesn't necessarily translate to a 3D surface well. Um, and then also there's another thing that they didn't bring up in, in the video, but it's just from personal experience. Um, 
if anybody wants to, or if, if anyone is in a commercial setting or any setting really using a paint sprayer to spray um, anything that uh, like a fungicide that's, that oxidizes, usually fungicides oxidize things, um, maybe some pesticides. A lot of, if you look at a paint sprayer, the very end of the tip is usually um, made out of metal. And um, that was one of the things that we were tracking down to see if that could cause heavy metal contamination or not. So that's just one more thing to worry about um, the tips of your sprayers, whether they're, you know, what material they're made out of and, and what you're spraying through that is that going to have an effect on your plant. So there's a couple of things just off the top of my head. Those are all great points. I suppose in the same way that like knowing the physiology of a pest or a biocontrol agent would allow you to to understand it better and treat it or use it better respectively. Same thing for a paint sprayer, I guess. You're understanding the like physiology of the paint sprayer in that way. Well, and paint sprayers are designed to spray paint, which if you've ever right. seen it, when they mix it at like uh, wherever you go and get your paint from, they shake the thing. So the paint is very uniform. So like Spartan said, with people spraying a, a a agricultural product that's not very uniform all the way through it has to be mixed up where the paint could just sit in a bucket and it's fine it's going to spray evenly the entire time start to finish where dr zymes and no no diss on dr zymes it's a great product it's, it's not designed to be used that way so if you use it properly in a thing that mixes like a horticultural sprayer will then it's going to be much more effective and the particle size just being uh small enough or large enough to impact the area that you need and, and be able to take out certain bugs it's the same also Chris Mertz in chat brings up a really good point as far as um, you need to ask questions like, is the mechanism of which this is being sprayed, is that going to, um, is that safe for microbes? So like, say, for example, you wanted to apply a compost tea, you're trying to apply microbes. If the spray is killing the microbes in the process, uh, you know, going through the, uh, the nozzle is killing the microbes, you're kind of wasting your time and money. Yeah, nematodes are a big one, too. A lot of people don't agitate the water. So when you apply the nematodes, they don't, they don't all, you don't get an even or uniform um, dispersal. Um, I see that more often than not, unfortunately, where like one area, they get treated very well with the nematodes and then the other area is just getting devoured by the pest in the root zone. And you can kind of see it when you have crop scout data and when you mark your, either you mark with flags or you use data input for a software program. Um, That's one of the reasons why I like a sophisticated recorder, because you can kind of see that and make that uh, distinction. It reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you, Matthew, and, and you may or may not have an answer for me, but what we've resulted just out of, because we don't have an answer, um, what we've resorted to do when we apply nematodes, we apply them the same time we apply um, recharge because we're hand watering in those situations. We don't run that through our irrigation lines. My question was, is usually in a, uh, the way we use to mix is we'll use what we call a mixing pump, but it's basically just a sump pump in a 55 gallon drum. We haven't been using that to mix the recharge and the nematodes because of the concern of those living organisms running through a, <laughs> a pump. You know what I mean? So what we've been using is just air stones to kind of act as the mix. And obviously we have a, a giant stick of like a one inch PVC that we use as a stirring stick too sometimes, but, uh, would they be okay through a pump like that? A mixing pump? Well, a sump pump? Yeah. I don't think so. Like I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I don't actually truly know, but I think that might be a little bit too aggressive. 
I think uh, it might have a shredding action with the water that might kill them. But and I could be wrong. I, I'm not a. It might only have partial mortality too. Like it might kill five percent or ten percent, or maybe it kills a lot more. I I don't really know. There's always that possibility too. But yeah, agitation's important. But um, a sump pump might be a little bit much. I guess it depends on the power. Um, I'd have to see it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty. It's fairly small. Um, but yeah, we just don't use it. Just out of it's better safe than sorry. You know, we don't want to waste money. We're not in that kind of business. <laughs> totally uh, right. I can speak on that because I use a a thing which is a sub pump that basically has a float on it. So when it goes into the water, it kicks on if it's plugged in, and it's just hooked up to a PVC pipe that just goes right back into the water. It goes up and then back down. So it's always agitating and uh, adding oxygen. And I've never had a problem with. Uh, the nematodes um that's right didn't you yeah we talked about that even a little bit didn't we and it didn't have you didn't have a problem then right nope do you have like a lift style though there's like those it's like a more simple just pvc and it runs through and drops it and uses like gravity to cycle it around well it's on a kind of like a pretty big size pump like this thing could probably pump out 50 gallons in maybe like three minutes four minutes nice sounds like a good option and uh i'm glad to hear that it was working well and not uh killing the nematodes or nematodes i'm not sure how it's pronounced i wanted to answer a question from chat real quick that they addressed to me because i'm too lazy to type but uh osbucket he was asking about wettable sulfur and the application rates I, we don't use that at work um we use I, I use that personally at home and i use it in a dunk and i use it at the same rate at two two tablespoons per gallon, but um, I've recently gotten information that if you add in some kelp at the same time, uh, there's a good benefit from that. And um, one of them being that they were talking about sulfur uh, could cause phototoxicity for some plants, uh, which would just be like a, not like something that lasts forever. It's a temporary deal, but uh, with the kelp that helps mitigate that, I guess. So I actually did that today with my clones. I dunked them. I took clones. Every time I take clones, I always dunk them anyway, but I put a little bit of kelp in there this time. But I did application rate. I mean, I just used the application rate for the kelp that was on the package. So whatever that mix rate is, I just followed that same rate and put it right in with the already mixed sulfur solution. You dunk your clones right when you uh, take them right off the mother or off the plant, or you dunk them like when you take them out of that thing? Yes, I do both. So when I take the mother and I, and I, after, right before I put the clone in the root right cube, it gets dunked. Then I put it in the cube and it goes in the clone dome. When they come out of the clone dome where I feel like they have rooted to my, where I want them and I'm going to plant them, they get another dunk before they go into um, soil. And you dunk, you dunk it into a natural enzyme solution? I don't have, uh, I'm going to start using uh, Dr. Zymes. I need to order it. Um, I haven't, but uh, what I'm using is sulfur. I'm just using wettable sulfur. You can get at mm. most all, like Lowe's, Home Depot, uh, garden centers like Meyer and uh, Walmart, things like that. It's just a wettable sulfur. Uh, it's for all agriculture usually. Um, it's a common product. Do you know what brand? What brand of sulfur are you using? One moment. I'll, I'll be right back. I'll just grab it. It's right here around the corner. <laughs> While he goes, I wanted to ask Can Can. Is that a uh, Can Can Grow hat? Yeah. Yeah. I, did, I was gonna, I was gonna compliment Spartan's uh, mitten canico hat and then throw it over to you because you were also wearing a branded hat and uh, both looking good, guys. Thanks, man. 
All right, this was the company is Bond B O N I D E Bondi Bondi. Oh, says it right here in the corner. I only ask because the tablespoon. I guess a uh, tablespoon per gallon. That's an equivalent to I think it's just over fourteen mils per gallon, and uh, I usually use it at uh, uh, fifteen milliliters per liter uh, when I spray it on. But that's uh, I use Safers. That was their recommended dosage. I just went off the back of their what the thing. It's got so many different usages for different plants, so I picked the closest plant, which I believe tomato was on here. The closest right. plant to cannabis, and I went with that. For those who this do has not got know. some filler in it too. So I mean, it's got it's got a surfactant already in it, and it's been micronized, so um, there's no big chunks or anything like that. In fact, the first time I dunked it, like if you look at videos of people spraying this stuff on their plants, it'll leave a residue on the almost like it almost looks like powdery mildew at sometimes where it pools up on the leaves and then dries uh but yeah absolutely yeah so when i did the dunk i wasn't seeing that at all and i was like what the hell and then i got reading on this and i saw that it was micronized and there's a surfactant in it so i actually had to scope the leaves and i could see it looked like sand on my leaves really small particles of sulfur on the leaves so it was there it just it does a really good job of spreading out for those who don't understand the uh, liters versus gallons, CanCan is using a little bit higher dosage of his uh, sulfur than Spartan. I'm also <laughs> using though, so I, I try to be air on the side of a little less. So you're obviously, when you're dunking your clones in that, you're doing that as a preventive maintenance on um, powdery mildew PM, but not, I mean, that wouldn't control like pests, like spider mites oh, and stuff would. like that. It, it would just yeah, it just it annihilates spite, mites, mite their eggs. It's kind of like an all-in-one product. It's it's a little bit nuclear as far as it's not something you can ever get away with uh, spraying in flour because it's the flavor of sulfur obviously will stick around. Um, I don't even like to really spray it too much in veg once they're bigger plants, just because I don't feel like I get really full coverage. And yeah, coverage is a big part of it, and any any other contact sort of killer. Yeah, so I'll use it if I have a pest. A known pest issue but ipm wise i'm only using it as ipm in my cloning situation and that's it yeah and so just for the audience um sulfur will like people have heard of like burning sulfur and that's different definitely different um sulfur dioxide also illegal in certain areas super now. illegal yeah i mean goes without saying um maybe it does go with saying because some places like across the world still kind of do this and it's very bad um, very bad for your lungs and anything that has like mucosal membranes, like your eyes, your nose, your throat, your mouth. Um, but uh, on your skin, it's not so bad. Some people get itchy um, and, and react to it a little bit more, but it's way different. Anyways, um, sulfur interacts with fungi. It burns their, um, their, their, their bodies, their cells, essentially. There's a chemical reaction that happens also with uh, arthropods. So mites but also insects because they both have sort of a chitinous outer layer and it gets burned it's actually the water and the sulfur interacting with the exterior rather than just sulfur by itself but usually there's enough moisture that ambiently it'll like volatize and that's kind of the the reaction that's burning them if that makes sense and to Noah's point it works as both a, a fungicide and a pest killer that Matt kind of mentioned earlier. Some people I've heard of use that basically as like the only thing they use or the primary IPM that they use. Um, like a lot of like Loki grow and uh, I think med grower one for a while. 
there's like a few big names in the like Instagram yeah. cannabis community that really swore by it. And uh, I've seen them have a lot of success with it. But of course, the, the ultimate caveat about using something like sulfur, like Spartan says, it's a bit nuclear because it will also affect, it'll affect arthropods, good or bad. It'll affect a lot of microbes too, fungi that might be considered beneficial as well as detrimental and other microbes as well. So you got to be careful. Yeah. And that's kind of like the thought process on why I'm using it in the beginning stages and that, you know, kind of, kind of like, start I like with that a clean slate, you know what I mean? Start with a clean, clean slate and populate it with what I want, not with what comes along with everybody else. So sulfur, I, I am a big believer in sulfur unlocking flavors in your cannabis. So I also like the, uh, the little boost of just having that elemental sulfur on the plant that it can possibly uptake if some microbes get on there and break it down a little bit. I have a question. Yeah, I just have a question. Do the plants ever utilize the sulfur uh, themselves to stave off bugs or pests or pathogens? Do you know Zunstanol? It's funny because I was listening to a future cannabis thing. I don't know which one it was, but uh, somebody was doing a, I believe it was on there, but anyhow... They were looking at all the people that whoever mentioned that people that like to use specifically sulfur only for their IPM. Well, they added up how much sulfur that they sprayed, and it just so happened to be the needed sulfur in the soil. So they were postulating that it was really by treating by foliar feeding sulfur, which they didn't really know they were doing. They were they were using it as an IPM, but by foliar feeding, the plants were getting the sulfur they needed. And they were postulating that if you fed the sulfur in the soil rather than foliar feed, they, they might have had a similar effect. I don't know, but that's what they're saying. Yeah, because I use a product that has sulfur in it. The Langbionite has quite a bit of sulfur in it. And uh, I add it as a, you know, in my mix, in my uh, like super soils when I uh, transplant awesome. stuff. Awesome for re-amending with. It's uh, one of my favorite. Then Epsom salts, you get, a lot, you get some sulfur there too. Yeah, it's magnesium, uh, potassium, and sulfur. It's uh, really good to use if you want a little secret and you're doing uh, like a living organic soil. Uh, you can do like a tea kind of. Um, what I would do is I'd take that rock mineral and I'd put it in like the ninja, grind it into a powder, or I would dissolve it in uh, warm water. Um, and then I would add that to my, uh, to my watering uh, schedule. And I would just monitor the parts per million. I do about 200 parts per million from RO water. Um, and I would water that in uh, like the last couple of weeks of flower. Not every day, but just like uh, maybe two or three times once a week for the last couple of weeks. And that would help increase uh, turkey production. Um, for those that are interested, I, I know that a couple of people in the chat were talking, but I mean, I feel that the fully your applications of the sulfur are just as uh, effective as uh, sulfur burning without the mess and without the potential danger anyways. Um, and, you know, something to, to what Spartan mentioned, you know, uh, definitely don't use any sulfur applications um, in flour just because anybody that's used sulfur uh, foliar sprays knows that it doesn't go anywhere. Like if you have a fan leaf that you ha keep on that flower from veg all the way to harvest, that sulfur is still going to stay on there. It, and it, it's a great coating. It, it'll like it's you. You'll never get any PM or uh, or or any of those issues on the uh, on the plant matter that continues to have the sulfur. But 
obviously it'll it'll stretch and, and grow new uh, plant growth after it's it's in flower. But I'm in the camp where uh, uh, weekly foliar application is the only IPM that I use unless uh, I have something I gotta address. But I think it's I think it's great. Are you applying that with just a hand sprayer, like a, a pump sprayer? Yeah. So I mean, I think that you need to. Um, kind of taking consideration what your uh, garden size is, uh, to be honest with you, because I'm only doing it in veg and I do a very short veg. Anyone that follows me knows that like I, I'll flip plants uh, when they're eight to 12 inches tall. Um, and so I only use a pump sprayer, but I think it's really important if you are, because we were talking about sprayers, if you are going to use a sprayer, make sure you're using one that sprays upside down. It's a lifesaver. You know, that way you can get uh, what you need um, uh, ab- above and underneath the leaves, uh, especially with the sulfur. So I just think that that's really important. I think I, I would did, agree with I did you. Try one. Oh, go ahead, Jack. Just was. on like the whole contact thing with the sulfur burners are less effective than probably foliar feeding it to your plant because you know you're getting direct contact if you're spraying the top and bottom of the leaf. So I want to throw. I do want there. to mention that be careful if you are using. Uh, Sulfur dust, don't use at least within three to five days, if at all. I wouldn't use any other type of applications because it, it will re- react badly with certain, uh, with other certain oils and it'll burn your plants. Um, and uh, the other thing is if you are, so sometimes what I'll do with um, any of my potted plants, I'll take it to an area uh, like a, a tub or um, uh, a large sink and spray there. Just remember that if you are spraying sulfur, it's extremely corrosive. So if it gets on anything else other than the plant, wipe it down right away. Um, because if you leave it there, like I said, it's it's just a corrosive thing. Definitely agree with that. And of course, just like we said before, um, a lot of biocontrols are not going to do well uh, post-release. Or so you know, you should wait a little while um, before you apply them. Oh, and it's not going to be—it's not going to be. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut anyone off, but it's not going to be something you want to leave in your spray bottle either. Especially if you have uh, like some of these mondies with like the metal heads or what have you, because it'll be done and it will clog. It'll clog your spray, and it's a hell to—you're uh, basically just buying a new sprayer. Definitely agree with that. I think it's a good idea to run warm water through a foliar sprayer after whatever you use, just to clean it out a little bit. Personally, I've always made that a practice just to keep it clean and make it last a little bit longer. But uh, I had a question in the chat from Grow Green, and I might throw this one over to Noah the Grower, because I know you do a little bit of a mix of some bottled nutrient with uh, some organic stuff. They ask, is it bad to water with liquid seaweed and recharge, recharge once every two weeks? if normal feed is liquid nutrients. So no, I wanted to give you the chance to jump in there. I don't have any uh, experience with recharge really, but as far as sea kelp, I've used it quite a few times. Um, I actually use it uh, at a diluted uh, level on the majority of my feedings and I use it in both veg and flour. So I, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, as long as you're, you got to dialed in with your actual application level, you're, you're fine. You don't want it to, you know, overbear on some of the other stuff, especially if you're using back one or other organic stuff. Yeah, I don't see a problem with that at all. 
sounds good. And uh, Spartan, I know you use Recharge with some organic stuff. Uh, what yeah, do you... what was his original question? Because I'm a little confused because Recharge has seaweed, well, it has kelp in it already. So if you're using both, you're, you're over applying. You don't need to have both. What was, what was his specific question about the Recharge? They said, is it bad to water with liquid seaweed and Recharge once every two weeks if normal feed is liquid nutrient? It's not bad, but you're overdoing it on the seaweed is what my answer would be because the the recharge think of recharge more of it's more than one product really it's it's like a bunch of products blended to one so it's almost like the best way i could explain it would be like a really good compost tea in dry form so you got some uh you got a sugar source molasses in there you have your mycorrhizae in there you have uh, a little bit of fungal i think you have uh, yeah, fulvic and amino acids and your kelp. So you got all of the, it's kind of like a, an all-in-one. So with the recharge, I think that's plenty. You don't need to add, uh, what was this, liquid liquid seaweed. You don't need to add that with it. Yeah, and I just wanted to also, add on top of that. Oh, sorry, I'll let you go after it, Noah. But uh, recharge is made by a guy, Scotty Reel. He's on the Dude Grow Show. And uh, he's a cannabis grower himself. And it's very apparent if you watch the Dude Grow Show that he's been doing it for a long time. And when he made the product, he kind of wanted to make like a little super pack, like a, a bunch of stuff all in one. So what Spartan just ran down is like, you can see these products found in a bunch of other things, either just on their own or mixed with maybe one other thing. But he wanted to get a bunch of stuff all in one. And a lot of people really in the grow community seem to enjoy that product. So I wanted to give it a little bit of spotlight because he does so much for the community sharing information just like us on their show, Dude Grows. I'm sure if you've watched the show, you've already seen that show before. So shout out to them and, and no other grow. Go ahead, jump back in there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I know a lot of people that do use Recharge and they like it a lot. Um, and I'm just curious why he would, you know, why why the question? Because it's like, obviously, you feel your plants are lacking in some department if you're, if you're even wanting to apply it that way. You know, I, once you get it, I, I wouldn't recommend doing something like that to your whole crop. But I mean, testing it on one bigger plant that's already like up to speed with, you know, nutrient levels, like you would want to just burn it right away. But I mean, I, I'm just curious about why the question, because usually when you're, you're wanting to add something, it's because you feel like you're lacking something. Well, uh, grow green, feel free. Sorry to scream into the mic there. Grow green, feel free to chime in and, uh, answer. If, if you're seeing some sort of issues with your plant, that's making you ask that question, then maybe Noah could give you a little more feedback or even the rest of the panel can answer you in the chat or on here. Sorry, just before we leave the whole sulfur dust uh, uh, application things, just sometimes on my mind. If anyone's interested in using it, um, it as a foliar spray in your spray bottle, make sure that you're constantly shaking or agitating your spray bottle because sulfur dust does not dissolve in the water. Um, it will literally, it, it, it will, uh, it'll just float to the bottom after a little bit, you got to keep shaking it if you want to make sure to have a consistent uh, application of uh, sulfur dust. That's a great point. Uh, a lot of people I don't think are conscious of that kind of stuff like Spartan alluded to earlier with the paint sprayer and like not agitating. Um, it can be a big downfall for people because you think, oh, I'm doing IPM two, three X amount of times a week, however much you're applying and you think you're staying on top of it, but half the room's getting doubled up and half the room could be getting nothing and that could be a really big issue for you. I already uh, answered in chat, but just for everybody, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Dr. Headpack was asking if he could get recharge in the UK. I'm not sure. 
but I would look on Amazon and if it's available to order that way, that's probably where you're going to find it. Just make sure it's from the right person. Make sure it's from the company, real growers, any other company I would question. <laughs> and UK SIF says UK SIF or SIF 420 says I use recharge and kelp and it works fine. No worries. Yeah. Kelp's definitely a good product. I just would, uh, if you have both products, um, and really with an application once every two weeks, it's not super a lot. So you could probably get away with doing it. I'm just saying you could probably get away with only doing the one with recharge and have similar results. Yeah, less is more is a motto I often hear, especially in the organic scene. And I see people that say that and follow through with it tend to do pretty well. As long as there's enough there and you're providing some of uh, what they want in that little buffet, the microbes and everything else seem to take in what the plant wants and, and keep it fairly healthy that product is mostly focused as far as the microbes that are in it are mostly focused on liberating nitrogen. So when you get start getting later in flower, you're probably going to want to cut that out because you don't want to keep making a bunch of nitrogen available all the way through to the late stages of flower. That's a great point. I wanted to take a second to give some more shout outs to the chat. DC grows, uh, Eagle gardens, UK SIF 420, uh, Mrs. D's Nugs, Chris Mertz, uh, or uh, Anova, thank you all for coming. We really appreciate you all in the chat. And if you have questions, uh, feel free to tag any of us. It'll light us up in the chat so we can find it a little bit more easily and answer that question for you. So one thing that I would like to bring up with uh, everybody, at least some, it was kind of an aha moment in my head, the age old debate with growers, um, as far as growers that clone. <laughs> And that is, do you keep moms or do you um, just clone your plants before they go into the veg cycle or before they go into the flower cycle and just perpetually clone like that? And I was always kind of in the game of, well, it's always smart to have moms because then you're holding these genetics for longer. It's more safe, we'll say. But then uh, they were talking, on, actually, I, I actually uh, sent this to Matthew too because they were talking about pesticides a lot. And um, they brought up a good point in that um, when you hold a mom and you, and you and you take multiple generations, we'll say you're holding a mom and you're taking cuts off it, filling a room. Then that mom generates more cuts for the for another run and another. Like you're getting multiple runs out of that mom. If you have a, a systemic pesticide that you could um, that you're trying to get rid of because you were getting tested for pesticides, um, that mother could be holding that systemic pesticide, and it's going to take longer for you to get rid of that those levels because you're holding that mom and, and, and doing multiple, you know, you're, you're resetting back to that mom's genetics rather than if you were cloning from a clone, from a clone, from a clone, every harvest, you'd be getting lower and lower levels. I would imagine because the half-life of the, of the pesticide. So I yeah. guess there is an advantage for doing it that way. There's two things going on when that happens um, with like a chemical that's not like self-replicating. Yeah. Like, you're basically going to sort of physiologically ebb out what that compound is over time, partly because of half-life, partly because of um, maybe like specific things to the, how the compound reacts to the physiology of the plant. Um, but there are other systemic things, right? Like viruses and fungi and uh, bacteria, beneficial and detrimental that can also stay in the plant tissue. And they might stay in at a very low amount for a very long period of time or forever. 
um, or they might stay in at a greater percentage if you kind of, you know, in the case of a beneficial microbe, like reapply it either to the soil or to the foliage itself. Um, and we'll say we'll say in a situation of a virus. Okay, so one that we know is hop latent viroid. If a plant had hop latent viroid, and uh, and we'll we'll just even postulate that maybe it's it's possible that if you put it into a environment is that's um, very probiotic in the soil system that it can being in that kind of environment is going to lend it to get rid of that virus possibly. Um, Still, if you were in a, a mother plant and, and you were taking those steps to try to make it the best, most probiotic soil possible, is that still safer than just taking a clone from a plant that's going to go into veg just because of the whole uh, uh, generation thing? Which, which is more safe, do you think, as far as viruses are concerned? So with tissue culture, just tissue culture by itself isn't sufficient usually. There has to be some sort of what's called thermotherapy where they heat up the plant um, and they kill what's inside. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but they basically apply heat and they kill the pathogen. Um, and then they take some of that tissue that's now been kind of excised uh, <laughs> from the virus. And that's what you use as the germplasm if I'm using that term right, I think, um, to produce your tissue and then the plant by itself. Um, with microbes, actually, there's a great research report um, that talks about something called uh, mycorrhizal-induced susceptibility. So some mycorrhizae actually make certain plants more susceptible to viruses. They facilitate the plant virus accumulation, the, the viral load in the plant. Um, and other sort of microbial dynamics might help or hurt that, but sort of genetically, once the virus interacts with the plant cell, um, it's kind of game over. I, I'm not sure how microbes would be able to stop that process, or I really don't know how what, what would be happening physiologically for that to be possible. I guess what I would say would be that the, the, um, with the microbes present in the soil, that they can um, provide the plant that's in that same situation all of the required nutrients and even um, they even have access to things like uh, you know the enzymes they produce and, and different compounds like that to I guess it's more not so much I guess uh, rehabilitate as it is as it is going to um, prevent it to begin with by building a strong immune system so that you can fight off these things more successfully than a weakened system. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really, it's really, I, I would just want to say it's managed, it's like managed decline. Um, and because they're all going to die, right? The plants are mortal. So a lot of plants last a very long time, a lot of them longer than human lives. But um, sort of like, in the natural world, I had this conversation with somebody recently, and I wanted to point out that, like, a lot of times, isolation in populations, this is going to sound like I'm making a metaphor, I'm not, but it is relevant. Um, social isolation in populations is a big part of pathogen um, susceptibility and uh, survival. So um, microbes can help uh, a plant 
as endophytes sort of um, maybe be less affected, but they might not be able to totally stop the infection. And so as long as that plant is able to survive to reproduce, then uh, ecologically that was fit and it was great. But that doesn't mean that they will keep the plant from dying. And I think that's a very important sort of point to make that uh, in nature, these plants aren't like like surviving and gaining immunity necessarily. They're maybe eking out a little bit extra life and surviving at the cusp Some in some cases. Yeah, I recently uh, watched Kevin Jody speak on this about they tried uh, regenerative practices to excise. Um, I think it was a vi- what was it a virus? Damn, now I'm not. Oh yeah, sure it was, he was talking was. to Lane Ingham with his Earth Box. The uh, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, and what what uh, happened was when they were all in that 100% organic uh, soil food web thing, the plants did fine. But once they put it back into a salts only kind of environment, it, uh, the pathogens take over again. But during the time that it's in that organic, really good uh, life, it, it survived. And, and I, I don't know if he said thrive exactly, but it was like it grew normal. But the, was, the pathogens were still in there, but they just weren't affecting the plant to the point of damage. So what it was so, specifically was that earth box system is an anaerobic soil system where there's very little ice. Not, I guess I should. it's hard to use the word anaerobic because there's oxygen present. But um, they use Bokashi on the top. The top is sealed with plastic so that the, uh, the water can't really evaporate out. It stay contained in the topsoil. The, um, it's a sip, sip fed, so it's watered from the bottom up. And it's always got that high moisture level in the soil. Um, they feed it EM1 through the water system, which you know can survive anaerobically or aerobically. And um, so they were kind of going that probiotic route and he claimed that uh, he could or grow the plant out of the virus or whatever. I will say that viruses are viruses are very different than like bacteria and fungi in how they interact. So, on the topic of viruses specifically, um, that's a way more pernicious beast than fungi or bacteria. And definitely, do I agree that plants can do a lot better? with other bacteria and fungi um, symbiotically. In fact, it's a pretty common ecologically recognized uh, phenomenon that a lot of plants require microbes in order to survive in more extreme conditions, uh, especially environmentally. And sometimes they can make or break it. Uh, There's actually a, a, a virus that is beneficial to a special kind of grass and it's a heat tolerance um, virus. And so if that's a virus that infects a fungus and that lives in a plant, and when that fungus is infected with that virus and inside that plant, that plant can survive in like 20 degrees more Celsius, like, uh, you know, uh, conditions in the soil, which is pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, those sorts of interactions are very complex, like we were saying before. Um, I'm very interested in us being able to harness and facilitate that sort of um, even better than we are already by understanding these sort of interactions. I'm more excited about, well, I guess it's actually along the same lines, but like, for example, with the, uh, when you can take something that's, uh, that can be harmful to the plant or parasitic to the plant and, and then um, grab like say a fungus, for example, to, 
affect that so that it's no longer um, a parasite to the plant, but beneficial to the plant. It's like that kind of stuff. Like they're talking with PM or something. They'd be able you to said switch. fusarium had one like that oh, too. Fusarium, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. There are tons of fusarium strains that are beneficial in some contexts or most contexts. And I think that's sort of really cool. It's because it's because like with the powdery mildew, like I made a video recently talking about how powdery mildew came to be basically. And there's some indication that the ancestor to all powdery mildews was a fungus that kind of broke down plants. Uh, so they were like a natural decomposer, which is great, right? So a lot of people would actually associate that with kind of a beneficial turnover of nutrients. But once that fungus gained some uh, cellulose uh, degrading enzymes and other plant degrading enzymes, that paved the way for uh, parasitism, pathogenicity. So no longer a common solic or possibly mutualistic interaction. Now the close interaction with the powdery mildew and the plant becomes detrimental to the plant because instead of waiting until it dies, maybe because it can defeat the immune system of the plant now, um, you know, why st no, no reason to wait. Now it can just take those nutrients directly. But powdery mildew is a biotrope. It has to interact with living tissue to do that successfully, unlike botrytis, for example, which just kills the plant cells and sucks up the nutrients, basically. So it's a necrotroph. As far as uh, the more recent, uh, it's been getting exposure to the hoplatin viroid. I was curious if you knew if that was totally systemic or not because i had seen in medicropper has a videos where he's sort of battling it off and you could and i don't know if this doesn't mean it's all the way through the plant but you could see part of the plant that had it and the other part of the plant that didn't and he would try and take cuts off the healthier portion and was like able to get them like back to usable and where they're not snapping over and falling and dying i don't i don't personally know i think that a lot of plant viruses are systemic um, to some degree and it's certainly true that some viruses might move slower than others, or at least the symptoms might move slower. And that's really a different thing altogether, because invisibly to us, the virus might be kind of throughout the plant, but at different like uh, concentrations, essentially. And so maybe you're just not seeing the damage yet. Um, maybe the application of certain microbes can help. Um, certain compounds sometimes, of course, are antiviral and either the plant produces them or it lyses the cells really effectively so that the virus might get into the cell, but the cell bursts pretty much uh, immediately. And then that's one way to resist against a viral infection. So like with viruses, like I was saying earlier, they're kind of, they're a lot more difficult to deal with. Um, I'm, I'm kind of making a broad generalization here, but with hoplite and viroids, um, it's even possible that certain plants have certain cultivars of cannabis might be more or less resistant to it, um, which is also going to be a factor as well. So I don't really, I don't know the conditions by which that happened, but um, I would not be surprised if maybe we're seeing some something in, the, in those categories happening or all three. I'll have to re-review and see which cultivars made it through. Uh, I know he had a, a round of several different ones, so it'd be interesting to get some data from him and, and if he's willing to share. I know he put, posted the video, so at least I can go back and watch and see, like, okay, he took this one and now it's back in flower again and looking good. And this one he just killed off entirely. Uh, so when I do review that information, I will share it with you, Matthew. That'd be really hey, cool. Before um, we change the subject, I got a question on, I, I would, I've seen presentations or maybe they were commercials, but saying that Meristem 
uh, tissue culture is like basically taking stem cells that are clean and you can regenerate the plant like from the beginning. So you're you're insinuating that's not so though, uh, Matthew Gates, is that right? Um, there's different ways to achieve tissue culturing. Right. So what I'm describing could apply to that or it could apply to, because um, you need, so like obviously just like with humans, maybe not in the same exact way, like there are places where we like to get tissue or uh, stem cells, right? Um, and there's only specific parts of the body where you can do that. Um, but with plants, uh, if I'm right, if I'm not making a huge error in my recollection, um, you can do it both ways. Um, you can sort of start with sort of, you can sort of make like a pure culture through, a, through one process. And I don't really know how that goes, but I think you can also uh, regenerate um, from some tissue and make certain kinds of tissue. Um, I think it depends on where you're taking it from. And again, like I was saying, if you're treating the tissue uh, first for like pathogens and that sort of a thing, that's pretty standard stuff, the thermotherapy. And in my non-scientific growing by feel and, and anecdotal evidence, I still say I can take a sick plant, not not 100% of the time, but I can take a sick plant, put it in some really good soil, and I might have to take it outside and get it under that UV light a little bit, but uh, it'll perk back up. I can I can grow it out of most things, I think. I've saved so many plants. I, I, I've just... I think if you get it in a nice, healthy soil and give it everything it needs, that its immune system eventually kicks in and it, it'll uh, perk up. And then that's that's a trick of mine. I kind of let that slip. If you take them outside, I think it's got something to do with the UV light or I don't know what it is, but if you've got a pot and you can take it outside and you have a problem plant or a genetics that you're trying to save and that's the only way to do it and you're just trying to get a good clone off of it, if it's nice outside, take it outside. Just take it outside and let it let it regenerate outside and take a clone. And when you take your clone, you can make sure you dunk it good and whatever IPM you want because you just came in from outside, but uh, at least you're saving your genetics. DJ Short mentioned for his breeding mothers that every year at the beginning of the summer, he would take the mother from the past season and put it outside under the sun. And he felt that that was one of the best ways to help it regenerate its vigor. If you notice that it lost it, that almost always brought back at least some of the vigor and uh, helped the plant just health in general. And he's been holding on to some stuff for decades you know uv light is um gaining a lot more traction and there's a lot of truth to that like there's a reason why we associate like fungi and molds and things with like dark dank places because the uv light will literally burn them um you know and i've made the the point before that one of the most important things about living on land versus living in the ocean when things moved on to land was how to mitigate the incredibly lethal sun rays. <laughs> and um, ozone layers weren't necessarily the same as they are now either across you know, millions of years. Um, UV is very effective and also for viruses for that matter. Uh, although um, that might count more for when they're on like um, some sort of material, uh, but not like inside the plant necessarily. But yeah, definitely there's a lot of truth to that. And then there's your, nat your native microbes, too. Who knows what, whatever they are, whichever strains they happen to be that are in your native environment, they've um, adapted to that environment. So it's good to get some of them in there, even, even if you're sitting your 
fabric pot on the ground outside, I'm sure the microbes are finding a way. Um, I'm super, super uh, jazzed about the research regarding cannabis microbes. And um, as you well know, I made that video about the cannabis ecology. Um, and I'm, I'm super interested in whether or not we can source microbes from like the origin parts of certain places where we've cultivated cannabis and see because um, cannabaceae in general that family it's the, the perisponia plant uh, uh, perisponia andersonii it has the ability to interact with um, nitrogen fixing bacteria which is something that has only really been seen in the legumes uh, but for some reason perisponia also has that ability because they have the same genes but all of the other plants lost that ability. It's not that it developed that ability independently, it's that it's the same genes. So some common ancestor between all of the leguminosae and the cannabaceae. Do you, are you familiar with the lupine? Or is a lupine also in that same family? Because that's a flower. Lupin? Yeah, L-U-P-I-N-E, I believe. It's a nitrogen fixing, but it's a flower. It comes up, it's like purple, and it's it comes back year after year. I, I just planted a bunch of them in my yard. <laughs> yeah, lu, lu, lupine, lupine is um, is is uh, yeah, it does have that ability. Is it is is that? It's actually in the Fabaceae though. If oh, I'm, okay. I'm looking at so that's not the leguminosae, right? Or did they change the name? They changed the name recently. From, okay, so I don't know that. Uh, yeah, or is that the Fabaceae? Yeah. I would trust your judgment, Matt. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm trying to make sure to justify my own sometimes because I even get confused with all the names. In fact, um, uh, to be honest, I actually mispronounce the family names all the time. Um, as ACA when the classical Latin way to do it is ACE, but uh, maybe it makes me more relatable. <laughs> Nobody knows the difference, though. No. Nope. <laughs> Only I would get anxious over the fucking arcane <laughs> Latin words, right? But um, no, I'm super excited because Perisponia has that super unique interaction. And I'm curious if cannabis might have something that we can unlock as well. So. I think there's probably some information in the other families that you've covered in the part one of your cannabis uh, and evolution, I think 2020 or 2019 video, uh, where you showed like Rosales and the other uh, things within that family. And I think I looked into that and I saw a lot of uh, crossover and, and differences and I found it to be very informative. So check out Sentinel if you want to check out some really informative uh, videos after this podcast. So if you don't have another topic, I got another kind of controversial thing that I want to get into about uh, why KNF might not be so great. Oh boy. I'd love to hear it because uh, I actually stopped doing KNF because I found that, you know, other sugar, like if you just use molasses at the proper rates and have the microbes that you need there, that it's as effective as uh, KNF and it's more consistent long-term. Yeah, me, we may have watched the same thing, but I'm curious as to the new uh, knowledge they were preaching about uh, compost teas and um, the effectiveness or what you're really getting when you really make your own compost tea. I have a pretty, I have an opinion on that as well. I've been saying that I don't use do compost teas because I don't know what the, I don't have the scope to check them. So I feel like I'm doing shit blind. I don't like that. So I don't do it. I really I do. Well, that, that depends okay. on your yeah. goal too, but. Yeah. I think that even if you had a microscope, the problem 
problem there inherently lies um, is you don't know what you're looking at. Uh, just because something is shaped a certain way or is moving a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that it is what you think it is. The only way to be certain is to do a genetic test or to do gram tests and then actually figure out, oh, uh, you know, what these things are. I mean, if you have a laboratory set up and you're getting that dialed in with your compost teas, then I could see it as a viable solution. Uh, but what I've done is I, I use the, the EM consortium, the microbe plus that I use for my company because it already, it, what it does is it operates as a consortium that works synergistically together, but it also enhances the uh, indigenous microorganisms that are already in the soil. So uh, for me to, you know, try to keep like guessing, uh, I'm like what I'm going to be putting in there. Uh, it takes away the guesswork and I get the, you know, cause I can use the bionutrient packs as a no brew tea. I put those in a tea bag. Um, I agitate the water and then check my parts per million. I know that my PPMs or my EC isn't going to be too high when I water. Um, and I'm adding, I know exactly what type of biology I'm adding, right? I'm getting the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I'm getting the right pseudomonas. I'm getting all the uh, bacillus species. Um, and then I know exactly what uh, the nutrient minerals that are going in there and where they're from as far as the, in the inputs because I sourced them myself. But I also find that to be pretty, I think that's really great. And I think that it's responsible to know what you're putting in. Um, but like sometimes it matters more and sometimes it matters less. And I think that's totally valid, Spartan, to have that sort of... Um, sort of outlook because sometimes you really don't know and uh microbes you know uh <laughs> sometimes they find a way and they change and a lot of them i go over this in the ecology video like a lot of the good guys that interact with the plant uh are very much related to the bad ones that interact with the plant um partly because they have the same ways to interact with the plant because they evolved the same along the same lines either independently or because they're related. And so there are symbioses and then there are ways to exploit those symbioses as parasites. And sometimes it only takes a few generations for something to kind of uh, emerge that way. Sometimes genes get transferred horizontally or something like that. And I don't know, it's just a thing to think about, I suppose. I want My to basic approach is a shotgun approach with microbes, if I can get the biggest diversity, that's what I'm looking for. And uh, I do like uh, the idea of Bokashi. I haven't uh, messed with it yet. I'm trying to close loops. I'm trying to not buy more products. I'm trying to buy less products. So um, I'm trying to, I, I'm not good. I'm, I'll probably never be 100% closed loop because I also have no problems paying for convenience like that recharge product I was talking about, you know. I don't have to brew a damn tea. I can just throw it in some water and water it in. Boom, save it. To me, what, what, I, what, what I was thinking is sometimes, well, like I never brewed a tea. I never had an air bubbler in a five gallon bucket ever in my life. And, uh, but if my, like my, my, when I use the tea, I'm basically making like a kind of a light liquid nutrient is my goal. And then I'll add in some earthworm castings as well to add some life into it. But um, if you're just going for some nutrients, and, and, if, and if you cut it a lot, then, you know, um, I don't think it'd be detrimental, even if you made your own 
tea, compost tea and it's messed up unless it goes really anaerobic, you know? I think you'd benefit if you cut it with a lot of regular water. But yeah, if you're just going for nutrients, it's one thing. If you're going for microlife, that's a different story. That's why people just add it in like Spartan saying and get recharged. Yeah, Spartan mentioned that last week, the difference between a nutrient tea and a compost tea or maybe a couple of weeks ago. And I agree. I think uh, it's effective to, you know, just add it in one or the other. And I would say for anybody who's at home, if you've already invested in, like if you've got some compost teas, I've used them dozens of times and had nothing but great results. And if you follow the general recommended guidelines, I would, ho I would hope that you don't have your garden die on you. I mean, I can't guarantee that because I guess it is a possibility. I've never seen it happen to anybody. Fumador and the flavor said sometimes you got to grow by feel. Uh, last time this was brought up, I think this is one of those things that like I've only seen it have a really positive result. Maybe I'm just doing it right or I'm just lucky. Um, but I would say don't throw it all away or like let it go to waste. If you've already got it, I'd say try and use it to the general recommendations. And if you have good results, cool. But maybe try one of the other alternatives and uh, close some loops if you can in the uh, – I do bubble. I do use bubble. I, I use air. I know America when you said you've never done that, but I, I throw air stones in my five gallon bucket when I'm just mixing up. Like if I'm just going to give it, if I'm just going to pH water, I throw air stones in there because <clears throat> I'm lazy. I like, it helps mix the water. So I don't just sit there and mix the water so much. And then two, you're just adding oxygen to your water. That's only a benefit to your root zone. I'm giving away all my secrets here, man. I, I can't believe it. I'm giving them all away. No, yeah, I understand I'll... all that, but when you pour when I when you pour your uh, water into your my soil, I mean it's going to have a lot more air accessible to it probably in my in, well, in not maybe all soils, but you know there'll be plenty of air in there. You don't. I'm telling you, if you just mix it fresh and pour it on there, the, it'll do what it's supposed to do, in my opinion, anyway. I'm talking about the dissolved oxygen that's going to be in the water itself. I'm not talking about the air that's falling down through the, the action of the water going through the soil. I, I'm getting both getting oxygen to my root zone and I'm getting pulling air down through the soil at the same time with the water. See what I mean? I'd say that right, oxygenating right. the water definitely, I've only seen it, it definitely in, doesn't increase hurt, performance. Yeah. It helps. It helps for sure, but you don't have to do it. I definitely think it helps. So even in hydroponic systems, I've seen that make plants grow way faster, like in the side by side where they did it without. So I think it's definitely a benefit. Uh, and I wanted to shout out, if you're into compost teas, there's a compost tea lab is a website and they have a brewer. A lot of people mention the downsides of using like a airstone if you're doing a compost tea because it's almost impossible to clean properly. Well, there's a product called the bubble snake and you can make your own. It's basically a piece of PVC pipe that they drilled some holes in and they put an end cap on and then you run a pump to it. And it basically runs a bunch of bubbles through the bottom of the uh, five gallon bucket and it gets your compost tea or nutrient tea or whatever you're using. If you're just oxygenating your water, um, it gets it all shaken around really effectively. And they have a few different recipes and things that I've used with nothing but great results. So shout out to them. You know, uh, since we're on the topic, um, in the video that we've been talking about with, with regards to me with the microbes and the, the cannabis ecology, there's a paper that I cite that's called the um, it's called Cannabis Microbiome and the role of endophytes in modulating the production of secondary metabolites and overview. And in that, I'm actually, I just brought up the, the video um, and the figure from it and an explanation. And there's a bunch of, they tested the, the, the flower tissue, the leaves, the seeds, the petioles specifically, and the stems and the roots. And I have here underneath the subtitle, bacterial endophytes composition, different organs of cannabis sativa, they say that 
the microbial community of bacterial endophytes associated with different cultivars of cannabis sativa belong to the gamma proteobacteria and alpha proteobacteria, including the Pseudomonadaceae, uh, the Oxalobacteraceae, the Xanthomonadaceae, the Actinomycetales, and the Sphingobacteriales, and all are well-known endophytobacteria which substantiate observations from other plant systems. All of that is to say, they also looked at fungi too, all that is to say is that there seems to be a lot of crossover with other plants, and so we might be able to find some more generalizable uh, endophytes that kind of have sort of generalized good effects, and um, that could be an option for a lot of people. Um, that, and then we also might find the more specialized microbes too. And so I think that maybe there's a way we can kind of make a, like with Bokashi, for example, I feel is sort of like a, a, a super generalist helper, if, if that makes sense. Um, whereas some other ones might be more context-based. See, I think Bokashi would be like a must if I had something, if I, my end game is to have a soil bed that I'm not replacing. If I had a system like that, then yes, I want to, I'll buy the Bokashi because I only got to buy it really the one time to get it going and hopefully I can keep it going. Uh, part of the system that I run with the probiotic farming of soil is like, I don't really like, I don't reamend the soil uh, like you would in like a bed and stuff like that because the biology that I add in there is enough to get uh, all the things that the plant needs. And so, I want to shout out the worms and the worm bins and uh, worm castings because whether you're using it in a compost tea, a top dress, mixing it with your soil, if you can make your own or have somebody who's local who makes it well, that stuff is like black gold. I think it's some of the best stuff you can put into your root zone or soil space or even on the phyllosphere. I've seen worm casting teas, uh, foliar fed, have great, great benefit to the plant. So shout out to worms and the worm casting. Yeah. As I say, including the worms. So you get the worms in there too. Yeah, worms are good for the having the soil system. It just help, It really actually helps build up the whole system as a whole uh, because of what the worms are offering as far as aerating the soil, uh, creating mucilogistic compounds that aggregate soil particles. It helps with gas exchange. It helps cycle nutrients. They release uh, enzymes. Um, and they also release... the soil? Just moving yeah, through they, it? Yeah, they, and right. they also are, you know, creating a more, uh, you know, bacterially dominated soil so that's one thing to think about too is um uh is that the you'll probably if you're running that type of system it's probably going to be a higher bacterial count um, if you have lots and lots of worm populations what was your definitive opinion on, on the knf I, i'm um i'd like to hear it or, or were you waiting for to see what i had to say first well here's the thing um i've never really got any uh i don't do knf myself right it seems like it'd be a lot of work to scale for large like it's it's good if you were doing like homesteading stuff like that really small um but when you start scaling for large agriculture i don't see it as a viable solution unless you start doing like kind of what i'm doing with the green waste recycling where you can take huge amounts of green waste and turn it into biological fertilizers right with KNF, it's more what they're doing is they're like, oh, we want this specific plant for this 
type of input and they're trying to create like whole nutrient lines like that would be similar to what you would use in a hydroponic system and that almost kind of for me defeats the whole purpose of what i'm trying to do which is less is more or i'm trying to get as much as i can out of my soil by just simply having the biology having the gas exchange making sure the soil structure is proper and the biology and the soil food webs correct Yeah, if we're gonna talk about the downside of KNF, I'd say I have at least heard it's having problems with consistency over time with testing. Uh, that was something I actually liked when I was growing, like for myself. Like I saw the bed change over time and the flavor got better. But if you're making a product for the market that you're gonna sell to people that want consistent medicine, then I don't think it's uh, going to replicate even with the same cut every year in the same place. Even if you tried it your best, it's gonna be a lot kind of all over the place. It might always be good but it, it's not going to be the same or even close. Yeah. And I think consistency counts for a lot of things uh, with regards to biosecurity and closing the loop to some degree as well. Um, you know, sometimes you introduce something and I mean, it's the same way that we get certain pathogens, right? Like you might be doing everything the way that you're supposed to for whatever context that is, but then, you know, a draft, the season is particularly hot in one area you get this butterfly effect and suddenly much more powdery mildew wafts into your general area um you know a lot of people think that if they get pests it means that they have failed in some way as a cultivator either because they didn't prevent well enough or or, or they're being gaslit by being told that their plants aren't healthy enough obviously because they now have a pathogen infection and i think that's very uh, damaging and a little pretentious. Um, agricultural systems and all systems really are pretty complex usually and it, there's usually not one singular um, point of failure and sometimes they're for external reasons that you can't control like your property fine but everything outside of your airspace well you know that's how these pathogens get around a lot of the time and pests for that matter. I have a couple issues with with just like the basic principle of the, I, I really like Jadam more than KNF, and I haven't looked super into either one to be very fair about this. But um, the whole principle of Jadam is more, they're more into soaking, doing like those teas that I was talking about, those nutrient teas where you're soaking these in water, not, not blasting with sugar and making alcohols out of it. And, um, <clears throat> but the problem I have is the sugar itself is like, if you, you know, like what Jack brought up was there's a study where they just added just a plain sugar source and in, and on one and on the other, they gave it the can, the FPJ, that would be the sugar. And they had similar results because it's, it's the, you're making the microbes bloom from the sugar source is what you're doing. You're, you're concentrate. Think of um, KNF is almost like you're doing a concentrate with cannabis and you're, you're making a you're making a nutrient concentrate it's concentrated from the plant when you do that you have to be super super careful you know what source you're using and people aren't doing that they're buying stuff from you know they're buying okay. products from the store or or whatever but or grabbing stuff off of uh, the side of the road where cars are driving by all day long exhaust is blasting those plants so any pesticides things like that those are going to be concentrated down in your ferment and those are what you're putting into your plant. So now here you are possibly, you know, if you're in a state like Michigan where we have pretty stringent testing, you know, you, you're possibly going to cause your own failure. Um, 
I've I've raised pests, arthropods, centipedes, jumping spiders, and things, and um, you know that's what we're often told. Like, or if you're or isopods, little roly polies, and things like that. Like, you don't go collect that food just out in your backyard or so or out in the forest because you don't know if there's like a virus in there or some sort of fungus or bacteria that's going to kill the organism that you're feeding. It's a very common thing to happen where somebody will go out. And they'll be like, ooh, I'm going to go catch a bug for my spider or whatever. And it dies because it had some fungus in it or, or something. You know what I mean? And Well, I'm, and I'm worried more about pesticides and pollutants because like right now, you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, dandelion FPJs because, you know, dandelions are, uh, is a good dynamic accumul- accumulator. So people are taking those. In, but, you know, dandelion, they grow in just about, really poor soil even so you'll see them where right at the side of the road so don't take those guys <laughs> don't, don't don't take those plants and, and put that in your plants i just unless you're doing if you put them in a compost a traditional compost pile that you know is getting up to temperature and, you, and you're you're turning it the way you should then okay i'm okay with it but if not if you're if you're not composting it thermophilically i think you would have I would worry about all the pollutants that that plant has has also dynam- dynamically accumulated in its life that you don't want that you're concentrating down in these in these like ferments. Yeah, I've um I've heard stories where they were getting the bananas that weren't organic and they had pesticides on it and went into the K and F uh you know recipes and it came up in their tests. But that definitely um, happens in California, the way I especially was thinking, where testing is crazy. Yeah, the way I was thinking recently is, and I tried FPJ once and uh, I, it didn't work. So that's not the reason I'm down on it. But so let's say you, you have your, your, all your fan leaves, right? You can put them in FPJ with some brown sugar, let that stuff all dissolve and stuff, right? Or I could stick them in my worm compost, composting bin and in a week they're black gold. Now, is, is it any better being covered in brown sugar than it going through the gut of a worm i'm sure it's slightly different but the nutrient-to-value value is probably the same it might be more accessible to the plant in some fashion but no matter what though that whatever constitutes the atoms that make up that span leaf are going to be in the leftover product so what's I'm everybody's not take on that i'm not poo-pooing knf i do think that fpjs can work in master cho and in korea specifically where it was created korean natural farming it's been shown to be very successful um, but if you look at his son, Master Cho's son, who's sort of been the pusher of the Jadam uh, natural farming, his methods, I think, make a little bit more sense to me. When I, I got into this, my buddy was really into KNF, and then he was reading the books, and he read Master Cho's son's book, and then he's like, oh, well, this makes more sense for where we are. And I think uh, you got to account for regional aspects of it, because like even how you're collecting your IMO, I've talked about like rice in the past. I, I don't think that's always the best option, especially depending on where you're at. Um, and Colombia, they grow all of their own inputs to make their own fertilizers. And that's like Colombian natural farming is what uh, Kevin Jodry talked about this a little bit. And it's going to be different depending on where you're at. So using working with the local area to best produce, I think there's not always one size shoe that fits everyone best. You know, you got to some people FPJ might be best and other people like other methods might be best. So uh, just take into consideration where you're at. I think the type of microbes that you use to break down the material is really important too, because um, if you're just using like uh, uh, if you're just using uh, like a sugar source and then just letting the natural microbes kind of do their thing, um, 
you're not going to be able to get the the maximum benefit um and one of the things that's like in the em which is part of the consortium that's really powerful is the write out uh pseudomonas and it's because this uh the specific uh uh non uh, purple non-sulfur bacteria it has four different modes of uh, metabolism and so it can actually oxidize inorganic chemicals things that are toxic like pesticides and um, inorganic other inorganic compounds it can also sequester um, organic compounds it can also uh, photosynthesize and it can also grow in both uh, no oxygen and high oxygen conditions so it's uh, it's pretty much like a super microbe um, and it's one of the one of the main um, microorganisms that's used in bioremediation for like toxic uh, wastes uh, waste and uh, like sewage agriculture waste is that part of the em consortium is that part of that or labs it sounds similar to those it yeah it's one of the bacterias that are in the em consortium um there's also the saccharomyces then there's all kinds of like the lactobacillus do uh, bruchii, there's the Bacillus subtilis, there's the Lactobacillus fermentarium, there's the Lactobacillus casei, uh, Lactobacillus plantarium. There's a bunch of different uh, Bacillus bacterias that all have a slightly different uh, secondary metabolite. Some of those metabolites can actually be used by the purple non-sulfur bacteria and also the CO2 that is being produced by the Saccharomyces cerevisiae when it consumes the polysaccharides, the complex sugars that are being produced. Um, they get uh, that that CO two is can be utilized by the purple non-sulfur bacteria as well. So I have a little change of pace and different question, but what do you guys think? I, I always see different thoughts on this. Whether uh, soil, we talked about this a little bit when Jeff Lowenfels came on. But is it really understood what's best for cannabis as far as like, is it better to be fungal dominant versus like bacterially dominant? And does it depend on the stage of the plant? What do you guys think about all of that? I think bacterial dominant. Everybody says fungal. I think they got it wrong. Plants not yeah, all, people uh, say bacteria more than fungus. If you have a Listen, long flowering plant, maybe. But we don't, who, who grows a long flowering plant? I think you put both in at the beginning and the plant will help and need the one it wants the most, and it'll help to try and kill the one it doesn't want. And I think it'll even out. I think when you add a whole bunch, you might be doing the service sometimes. But like Mammoth Pea, I've used it, and that one, that one uh, strain I had made it made a difference, undoubtedly. But yeah, I think the plant can sort it out more than we think, or more than we know. I think it's super context-based on what what the fungi and the bacteria are. And do we also consider, like, I don't know, like pesticidal action by microbes as part of the fungi slash bacteria? So, like, if I decide that I'm going to apply Bouveria bassiana, right, which can live in the soil, but also can live endophytically in plants and on the surface, is that, like, fungal dominance? And, does that, and is that also a volume question? Are we talking, like, alpha diversity, like, how many species we have in total? Or are we talking volumetrically how much of each one is i'm there. not gonna lie i'm not sophisticated enough to answer that question yeah i think that it would be i think what you're asking is i think that's a, a valid question that nobody's addressed i think yes you would have to because we're still talking about 
that's still present in the soil. So if we're, but I think what the idea of the foil, the soil food web is trying to get at is the whole nutrition cycle. So because, okay, Bavaria bassiana is not really cycling nutrient to the plant directly, we could probably exclude that in the count. Yeah, because I think mostly people are talking with in the sort of the context of like, um, like in the rhizosphere mainly, right? Yeah, making things available yeah. to the plant as well. Brandon, what do you think? Are you been a little quiet over there? Look, so I would I would include Bavaria bassiana. Bavaria bassiana is actually a soil microorganism. I mean, it's not like uh, this thing is. I mean, I know that we're manufacturing the lab and using it at high rates to combat pests, but it's it's naturally there. It's one of those things that are kind of ubiquitous, and there's probably different st- uh, strains, you know. Uh, but the thing here's the biggest thing: the the question scientifically it can't even be answered at this point because what it takes is a massive amount of research, and to be able to do that, it's going to take genetic testing on all these different aspects. So you could do something like you can look at a plant and do something like the Lamont soil test, which I'm going to start doing tomorrow. Um, and you can take numbers, right? And then you can take something like your microbiometer and you can test your bacteria. And now they have a new test for fungus. And you can see kind of like what those levels are. And you can, you know, create data sets and try to, you know, do a correlation. But until we have the technology or we have the technology, but until the technology becomes readily available and inexpensive i don't think it's going to really be a viable option and i you know like you know american once said i think it's about the plant is going to ultimately decide and the main focus shouldn't be really it should just be on like you know gas exchange soil hydrology and ph so that way you can maximize the biology whatever that biology is and then kind of let the plant exudates do the rest can, but can kind of my, Noah, do you guys have anything? Oh, sorry, did I cut you off, Spartan? I was just going to say my real basic concept on the whole thing is the is that it's situational. I guess I should have said from the beginning, but in most situations, so if you're not reusing soil, if you're um, you know if you're a no-till grower, then yes, of course, I I a hundred percent am behind building that fungal dominance, but fungal it's just the whole time thing with me the, the the time that it takes for that fungal network to establish in a in a pot we'll say and and then to make that relationship with this with the plant the plants harvested well no that's part of no-till though they leave that whole network in there and then they plug that's, in the plant and those right. roots as soon as they hit that stuff supposedly that the theory is that they all get locked you know it's like they, then they could start yeah. immediately yeah, I agree okay. with that. That's that's what I'm saying. So I'm saying yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh, with situationally. Building, yeah, yeah, I agree with building that fungal network. If you're going to take advantage of the of the advantage of a fungal network, which is the longevity, which was all, all those things that it brings in the long term, but to to reap those rewards, you can't be throwing your soil away. Okay, that, I, guess I have. Comes- I have some I have I have some impressions here. So uh, again, in that video, if you want to check out the research and the diagrams, you can check it out after this podcast. Um, but the research report is called "Understanding Cultivar Specificity and Soil Determinants of the Cannabis Microbiome," and I've highlighted some of the um, pa- some of the parts of the paragraphs I thought were really salient. 
Um, here's some general yeah. things. Uh, soil type had the strongest influence over significant um, OTU difference. So basically, just to give you some context, they took a look at different soils and they tried to see whether various microbes in the rhizosphere, which is, for those who don't know, specifically the area that's very close to the roots. Um, it's not the entire soil area. It's not the pedo, what's called the pedosphere. Um, it's just the rhizosphere, the area near the roots, uh, under the influence of the roots, you could say. And then there were organisms inside the plant. And then there was bulk soil. And what they found was that bulk soil was kind of like the most speciose, sort of. And then the rhizosphere tended to be from the bulk soil, but concentrated into specific ones. And then the ones that got into the plant were, you know, even smaller proportion. Um, there were no significant unweighted OTUs, so that's the sort of the different microbes, uh, differences between the strains, um, further suggesting that the importance of strain in structuring OTU abundances rather than OTU presence or absence. Um, they also say that, where was it? Um, uh, I had other stuff I wanted to say. But I think it I might be a little bit over some people's heads with the OTUs, but I wanted to give a shout out to a guy who uh, is doing like side by side. So th I think the science is really good, but I think I have to agree with Brandon. It's a little bit early, even if there is a, a white paper. I'd love to see it and maybe. Uh, oh, this is it. just one white paper. Definitely. Right. But um, it was interesting because when we talk about how the soil I, is important. I believe uh, I just put that link in the chat. Yeah, that's the one that it, he's reading from, I believe. Oh, really? OK, we'll yes. see. My point yeah. was um, going to be that there's a guy named Nutrient Shootouts. Shout out to him. He's a, a Michigan grower, and he just takes it to, like, the level of, well, maybe there is going to be so much time between, like, now and when the science comes out. So I'm just going to test the soil side by side with the same lighting, same clone, everything. And he keeps it as consistent as you can get for, like, a citizen science type experiment. And I think that is, if you're going to get into some sort of setting, trying it out. Grow one plant in one pot, a clone and then grow the same clone, same pot next to it, under the same lighting, same amount of wind, all the other factors kept the same, relatively water at the same amount, uh, depending on the soil mix and everything. And you'll see for yourself side by side, we don't need to necessarily know fungal versus bacterial, but I often see, the reason I asked wasn't because like, I have no idea at all, but I often see on videos people saying, oh, you definitely gotta have fungal, you definitely gotta have bacterial, blah, blah, blah. And it's, they're so definitive when they say like, it. What's that even to bring based it up. on? Yeah, right. What's it even based on? But I wanted to bring it up just to show it's more complex than just saying you need this or you need that. So don't get like conned by some uh, consultant <laughs> that's trying to sell you <laughs> on one way or I, the other. I think you definitely need both. You definitely need both. Without, you know, that's one thing. But whether you need more of one or more of another one, I guess, is where the question lies, right? You need Which both. I would phrase it this way. I would say that you can definitely use both. You could probably make great stuff without either, potentially. But, you know, um, that's very context-based. And I think that, like, uh, like Jack says, very, very astutely, this is just one single paper. And there's going to be many more. And we're going to refine our understanding of microbiology for plants in general and for cannabis in particular. Um, but I think you can, you can definitely use both. Um, yeah. You know, I'm so embroiled in my own world that I just think everybody grows organically. It does it my way, which I think you need it. You don't need it if you're doing hydro. I mean, that's that's. But see, my take is hydro is 
the nutrients you're giving the plant is what the nutrients that the bacteria and, and microlife would supply in an organic situation. Whereas humans just did the work by, you know, extracting them and giving them to the plant. But, but if you look at traditional agriculture, I mean, all the runoff in the wastewater, like all the over fertilization of nitrogen and phosphorus in particular, it shows you that without microbes and without a proper soil structure, that not 100% of that nutrient they're pouring in is being uptaken by the plant. So you can make it more effective. Uh, again, shouting out Scotty Real on Dude Grows. He always says nature abhors a vacuum, which means like nature hates a vacuum. It's going to be better off if there's microbes there. Even in DWC, if you get the right microbe consortium, it's going to make more of those nutrients available. So you can either run a lower EC with success, which saves you money on nutrients, or you can run a higher EC and it can handle it um, through different mechanisms, actually. But the microbes, I think, benefit. DWC, cocoa, any hydroponic growing. I've, I've found that I think that they're going to be beneficial in preventing things like pythium and, and other things like that. Yeah, he, um, Scotty Real has uh, attested to the fact that when people hydro grow and start using it, uh, the recharge, sometimes they uh, burn their plants because it's so available to them. So they have to like knock down the nutrient level a little. And I, I would also say that um, like uh, with regards to the use of uh, various microbes the the different species are going to have very specific effects or some of them can anyways and so there might be like when, when you brought up that like nutrient runoff can cause like eutrophication right where like uh the microbes in the water use up all the nutrients really quickly they use up all the oxygen and everything dies inside well that actually happened on a global scale um a long time ago when plants were making oxygen and we had sort of a a runoff effect um, and a lot of things die, or microbes did this too as well before. So um, nature does abhor a vacuum and nature also abhors something on top for too long, exploiting a particular, um, I guess you could say, mode for too long. So eventually you're going to have some sort of... Are you referring to us? Are you saying humans, Matthew? I, I am. I am. I am saying that exact thing. <laughs> Inferring well, like, that maybe he is a, maybe a cyborg. Well, maybe, but let's look at it this way. Um, uh, my, like the fossil fuels, uh, I'm not getting a political here, I hope, but like, you know, though that carbon was sequestered, that's why that it's in the, it's in the ground, right? So like they were that's, taking- That's pretty fair science to-, to Right, <laughs> so we're kind of doing, we're kind of uh, sort of mechanically, this is maybe a little too oversimplified, but we're sort of mechanically metabolizing the microbes and plants and stuff um through through their their uh reactions right when we're when we burn them so it's kind of the same thing sort of but not really another feel good moment brought to you by matthew gates since it's gotten a little quiet right (laughs) i want to throw out to uh spartan ask you what you're smoking on i just rolled way too fat of a joint of some dosi dough and i'm uh feeling pretty good now and I choked it down way, way too quick, so I'm feeling good in my chair over here. What are you smoking on, Spartan? Uh, I don't know. I have to find something else. I just smoked a, a last. Uh, I had a nug of uh, GG4, so that stuff is one of the ones that I can smoke once I, you know when you smoke enough and then you just can't get high anymore? Well, you reach that ceiling. The GG4 helps you get through that ceiling. It pushes you just a little bit further, and that's why I'm sitting here with a smile on my face tonight. 
I love those types of uh, cultivars. And shout out to Josie Wales. He's been on the Growing With My Fellow Growers before. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and tune in because that is a fucking awesome episode. I just got to say, shout out to Shane for making that happen. Shout out to Josie for coming on. Shout out to Brandon Rust because I know you've uh, gotten to work with him a little bit and actually, you know, talk to him a lot more. And I know you run the GG4. What are you smoking on over there, Brandon? And do you have any thoughts on it? Oh, yeah, I'm smoking on GG4 too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, I got I I got to go I got to go hang out with him at his house in uh, Las Vegas. I cruised out there and he gave me some seeds and we got to bullshit around. It was cool. Um, but yeah, the uh, Gorilla Glue Four it's uh, it's a great variety. It's super pungent. It's I mean it's one of those things that I don't really smoke during the daytime because um, it's you know it gets me tired after a little bit. Sorry, I have my bird with me. He's being obnoxious right Shout now. Shout out to Lucky. Lucky. That's all right. We love him. Shout out to Lucky. Um, so, uh, yeah, I actually have a, a whole room, 40 lights uh, of Gorilla Glue right now. That is monstrous. So um, I'm only about, I think, 16 days into flowering, but it's going to be a good one. Shit, this travel needs to open up so I can fly my ass to Oklahoma in about 30 days and uh, come in there about like day 45 a flower and see 40 lights of GG4 grown by you, man. I'd love to smell that room. I was just oh, going to say, it's one of those strains that I think it gets stronger as it cures. Like this, the, it just gets danker and danker and danker and just fucking, so I can't so, imagine what a whole room smells like. Dude, when we, when, uh, when I harvested, uh, like everybody was like, getting really giddy because there was just so many terpenes in the air like you could i saw a noticeable there was an absolute noticeable change in everybody when we were doing our harvesting and it like everybody was getting high off terps aromatherapy is fucking real man there is white papers behind it and you can look them up it is real uh there's been some suggestion that the uh, synergistic effect with cannabis may be not exactly working the way that some people think it might not be like enhancing the cannabinoid system i think it's just the aromatherapy is actually very effective on its own and when used alongside cannabinoids both of those things feel great together so i think uh there's something to be said for that well i think there are other physiological effects rather than like you know cannabinoid receptors or whatever that's happening yeah like you're saying right like we see this happening with other animals insects arthropods positive negative in different concentrations plants too so it's it's a phenomenon that definitely exists for sure like, i can't smell an orange without put like having a big smile on my face or if i run my finger across like a lemon or a lime rind that like limonene it literally makes me smile and like it's just a physical reaction yeah i think I, i've seen a paper which says that the terpenes don't have an entourage effect with the cannabinoids but i i think that's what you're referring to that it's not necessarily an entourage where they're going in together but separately they affect the human in a way that is just awesome. And I think that's what's really happening and science will figure it out eventually. There was there was a report that even I shared that was talking about, I think CB1 and CB2 and maybe another receptor or two, but there's like tons of other receptors that they didn't check, right? So- Yeah, and there's so many minor cannabinoids that we haven't even really gotten into like the THCP and CBDP that are just now being discovered. And we don't even uh, know, I think they're like potentially 30 times more active at one of those sites, but I do know beta caryophylline is unique in terpenes because it's one of the only ones that is considered also a cannabinoid because it has some effect on, I believe the CB1 receptor, maybe CB2 though. I think it's a CB2, the CBD receptor. Uh, it's one yeah, of the yeah. two that I think that might have gotten mistaken 
because it's actually uh, it has the same uh, effects um, on the uh, receptor sites as CBD, but they're a little more potent. I know they work great together. If you have like a spicy strain or a CBD strain or both combined, uh, those terps tend to work for me. I have arthritis pretty bad, and Girl Scout cookie, one of the back notes on it is definitely beta caryophyllene. I've seen enough terpene tests out here in California to know that that variety, uh, that clone that's grown pretty widely around, although it's not always exactly the same because like if you've seen the grow off, you give 15 growers the same cut, you get 15 different test results back, whether it's terpene profile or cannabinoid profile, but there's a general trend that carries across. So um, definitely I've found personally uh, beta caryophyllene or caryophyllene, I don't know how it's pronounced, has been uh, medically therapeutic for like relieving uh, both like the ailments of arthritis in my hands and just general swelling and, and inflammation from injuries. Have you tried GG4, Jack? Oh, yeah. I, I like GG4. It's uh, depending on who grows it. Grant Brandon grows some fucking awesome GG4. And yes, I'm he does. a little sad that he moved because yeah. it was nice to indulge in that every now and then. Selfishly, selfishly, yes, definitely. I, I really miss the the crosses, Brandon. You're you are a craftsman. Ooh, that Lamarillo, man. I'm bringing it to Oklahoma. Oh, it is in it is crazy. It is just it's one of those things where you know that there's diff, there's a couple of varieties out there that are uniquely characteristic for their terpene profile, like Jack Herrera, J1, J13, all those. They have this very unique, very bright, and they're very loud. That is how, or like the sour diesel. That's how this Lamarilla is. It is just so pungent. It like just makes your, you know, it, your eyes widen, your nose, your nostrils flare. And it's got this like, it's got this like, no, like it'll burn the nose hairs, right? It's got this like chemical fuely, like pungent reekiness to it. It's just, I just absolutely love it. I was just smoking some Capital G from uh, Duke Diamond bred it, but it was grown by my buddy, and I had it curing for about a year because I saved some for my uh, wedding or 420 each year. And over time, like it really brought out sort of like a, a paint thinner, like terp to it or something. It was crazy. It's like it smelled so chemically, and it had that really stinging in your nose. But underneath it was like earth and like berries, almost like you were describing the afgui earlier. Very similar uh, backside, but that paint thinner was so aggressive, like it just stings your nose. Well, I want to hear more about that, Jack. What uh, what won, in your guys' opinion, going through that gauntlet of all those saved buds, what one was the top pick between the two of you? Did you guys, first of all, did you guys agree on it? And then secondly, if not, what, what, were, the, what were the two top picks? You know, I think we would definitely have different uh, choices. She's asleep right now, so I can't ask her to uh, confirm. She's just taking a little nap, but... I personally, it, I like the Kush Lord. It, it was like super sedating and it's what I chose to end the night on. And it's got a super heavy berry, almost like butter to it. It, it literally almost smells like cooking butter and berries and a little earthy. But uh, that was from Nameless Genetics on Instagram. And they actually don't sell seeds or anything, but a buddy found a bag seed and then gave it to my buddy who grows. And he's like a very good grower in the first run, that first seed run, it was just amazing. So he kept the best nug from the bag that I got from him. And it's been since like two 420s ago, actually, that was the oldest nug. And it put me down. And I almost <clears throat> almost never can go to sleep. Sorry, I'm clearing my throat because I smoked a fat joint, not because of any other reasoning. Probably being that old, too, that CBN has probably been pretty, pretty heavy with CBN, so it had to have been super narcotic. 
Yeah, it was soporific as well. That sort of sleepy effect when it just like waves over you. It was nice. Good way to end the night with. Jack, only I'm allowed to use complex words. I use that from Frenchie. He actually, uh, soporific is one that, because he talks a lot about hash and even sometimes when you press hash, there's like not a ton of CBN. But I do think like Spartan just said, when you age it, and especially like when you age it, I don't think 100% properly, like I'm just letting it sit in a dark uh, drawer and trying to keep it as cool as possible. But shout out to Curador on 420 on my wedding day. I actually won a Curador, which is kind of like a wine fridge. So if you can't afford one, I'll say like, you know, there are wine refrigerators that keep similar temperature ranges, but I don't think they monitor the um, relative humidity as much. So I think that's pretty cool about the Curador. I'm actually going to even try and like cure a harvest in there or at least a plant and see like the difference between that and like hanging it in my house and my normal drying method. So uh, Curador for anybody who doesn't know, it's just a... Same plant, half and half. That way it's a true test. There we go. Thank you for the suggestion. Makes my science a little easier. I'll try and get like a similar bud, you know, and only top it once. So you get half of it on the one side and half of it on the other side. Even then, I got to be a little careful because my room, I've got a supplement of blue in the middle. And I've noticed over the last few harvests, it definitely like it's not just the science. Like I've read, oh, yeah, 440 nanometer blue brings out more terpenes. And it uh, also brings out anthocyanins. So it's like fun to read it on a piece of paper. But then when I run the three of the same variety in the room and the one in the middle, right underneath the blues is the most purple. And all the ones on the outside, I have like a touch of purple on that part that's closest to the middle. I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have added more blue like uniformly across the thing instead of just in the middle ring. So Something to think about. Fun, especially when you have a light that you can adjust spectrums with and stuff. It's cool to play with that kind of stuff. Taya, what are you smoking on over there? Oops, sorry, I was on mute. I'm, uh, what, what am I? Oh, I was smoking some, I have this vintage blueberry from uh, AK Bean Brains. And uh, I've been hitting on that, and I have a couple of other things, but that's the one in the pipe right now. I got my little bubbler over here. Is it pretty true to the flavor and the smell? Yeah, let me tell you. All right, so I had blueberry back in the day, and it didn't smell like blueberries, but I tell you guys, I swear. So I had like maybe, <clears throat> I forget how many, but they were all clones out in, the, out in the woods one time. And right when the bud started, they were little, and they were round, and I swear, they were the exact color of blueberry. But even like that, you know, like that sheen that the blueberries have, it was so bizarre. I kind of got a picture, but it was a long time ago. But um, that stuff didn't taste like blueberry. This vintage, I don't even know what if it's straight up blueberry genetics in it, but he, he, it was labeled vintage blueberry. And it literally has blueberry taste and then like a kickback of like a little chemical taste. It's, it's weird, but it's, it's awesome. I'm loving it. Well, shout out. Where'd you uh, get that one again from? AK Bean Brains on IG. Um, he's a good dude. He, he's yeah, got, he's like, a real. He's, magazines and all the old uh, CD yep, catalogs. The catalog and stuff. I actually hooked him up with a couple of catalogs that he didn't have in his collection at the time. And uh, yeah, he's totally down to earth and a real, real deal good dude. I like I everything have I've seen. Some of his uh, Skunk One Time Super Skunk, some of his TKNL5 and his TKG13 going right now. That TKNL5 is fire. Uh, I grew some of that. It's amazing. Too. Yeah, that stuff is potent, but it didn't have the, this, I'm telling you, this blueberry has terps that just fly off of it. That other, the TKNL5 Haze didn't have much, very little as far as smell, but it was a uh, good smoke though, for sure. That's the NL, man. Sometimes NL just doesn't smell like anything, but it's strong as shit and uh, it can yield pretty heavy and, and be very, very potent. 
but I, I agree. I'm more of a person for Terps. I want it to smell good, taste good, and have a good effect. So shout out to AKB Marines for having some good varieties. Noah Lagroa, what are you smoking on over there? You've been quiet. I'd love to hear how you're doing. Uh, right now, I've been uh, kind of obsessed with this uh, Dosi Dos. I always, uh, I always keep around GG4. That plant is very. Uh, it, it's one of the better ones. I like it a lot because of it, it's also a heavy yielder. Obviously, it's got a very good uh, trichome, trichome producer for people who are, uh, you know, head chasers. But I, uh, yeah, I, I like the the platinum. Platinum Girl Scout cookie cross with OG Kush that I got. I got quite a few different ones that I keep around. But the Dosey Dose is kind of the, you know, flavor of the month that I've been kind of just, uh, you know, really uh, kind of infatuated with recently. I was just smoking on that too. I'm sure the listeners, maybe they have short-term memory loss because uh, they're smoking some of the right or wrong variety. But uh, yeah, there's two of us smoking on Dosey Dose and two of us smoking on GG4. So if you're listening, that may tell you that something about those cuts, they're pretty decent. What about you, Can Can? What are you smoking on up in the Great White North, as we call it down here in the states? I'm just I, I got I think two or three days left on the the drying of the recent harvest of the strawberry banana and the MK Ultra, so I'm really looking forward to that. And I mean, you brought up the the Doxido, and um, I don't have any of that, but uh, uh, the Jordan and the Islands run that I did with uh, the Black Doxy Fire, which was uh, which is uh, bl- Blackberry Kush, Doxy Do, and Fire OG Cross. Um, that one should be done uh, drying this week too. So that's what I'm gonna be on as soon as that's all done. Sounds hey, like some good can. stuff. Are you aware if, if Jordan the Isles yeah. is still a functioning uh, entity? And I know they're up in, he's up in Canada, but I haven't seen him in, in on IG or in the Americas lately. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, he's he, he's still he's still going. Uh, his it's I, I don't know which IG you were following. He's got a new one. It's J of the Islands. Um, if you go through my, um, Instagram, I've tagged him a few times because I was, I was doing that. Uh, I was doing that, you hunt run with, uh, one of the strains from his, uh, black line. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely still, uh, still kicking and, uh, still, uh, still All right, listen, I'm going to track him down. Cause yeah, I, I have, um, I have the straight God, bud that I have from him and I had, I had an, Oh God, it was, he called it. Oh God, it was OG Kush by God, bud. And I, I I lost that one though, but um, yeah, he he's legit too. Yeah, and some I'll, of them strange. I'll drop you in and 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 I'll, I'll drop you a DM uh, with whatever contact information I have of his. For those who don't know, that's what uh the good old the American one bred with some of that gear. I think it was Ophelia, right, with the O God. Yeah, yep. I hit the O God and I hit that God, but with the cheese cake male, and uh, yeah, they're they're awesome. They really are. I'm well, with the cheese quake. I got to say shout out to Subcool. Rest in yes. peace. He's a great breeder, and I'm happy to hear anybody breeding with some of his males. I know I plan to, so look forward to that in the next year or so. I'm going to be doing some work with his Jack the Ripper and trying to make some seeds available for some people, both F2s and crosses with varieties that I like. Yeah, that Jack Ripper is real deal, too. I've got some Cuvée pre, pre-fire, the F1s, so I'll probably just try to get them popped this year, I think. Try to hunt for some of those chocolate terps, I guess. Yeah, man, I, I I like how Eagle's doing it too. He's got a bunch of packs, and he's just actually he's not going to breed with it. He's just trying to find the best cuts to 
spread out as far and wide as he can because uh, he doesn't feel like you know improve like changing the line he just wants to keep it for what it is and grow it out and find the best pheno that he can and, and share that with the community and have uh, sub be remembered that way and I think no matter how you're doing it growing his stuff out and uh, showing that respect for him I got some Doc Holidays that's about to get flipped into some flour which is a tester from him it's like huckleberry cookies with hellfire OG so I'm looking forward to that one it should have a little berry and some gas I'd imagine so it's gonna be some fun yeah shout out Eco Gardens man he's he's like my bro so he's a great guy i uh am a big fan of if you haven't already checked it out he's got a his own show on youtube it's called fucking talking shit with eagle and it comes on every night here in california about 8 30 which i think means it's like 11 or 12 30 your time out there yeah it's 11 30 that's why i'm not usually there it's past my bedtime it's a late one but there's the michigan bros grow show in between too which is about to come on in about 12 minutes so i know that there's got to be some new listeners that haven't tuned in before and speaking of them, we've got about 72 listeners in the chat. We had about 80 earlier. I know uh, we don't have that many thumbs up, but if you're enjoying the show. We have 103 views. Sorry. Hey, that's good. Hey, we're over 100. We cracked triple digits live. And I know uh, with Shane's following, it's actually mostly on the podcast listener end, which is surprising to some people, but he's got a big following on that end. So this show gets out far and wide and lots of people listen uh, at lots of different times. So thank you to everyone in the live chat and all those listening afterward. I got cotton mouth like a mofo, so I'm going to go refill my water bottle. And uh, I'll just pass it over to one of you guys, like uh, maybe Can Can or Spartan. I don't know if you're signing off yet. Yeah, but, I'll uh, jump out of here right now. Um, but uh, before before you run, John Reef had a question for you to when I get or when you get back, I guess. He was wanting to know the genetics for GG4 and Dosey Dose. I, I know you probably have it memorized. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the uh, genetics for GG4 are Sour Dub, Kim's Sister, and Chocolate Diesel. Okay, cool. I knew it was Kim's sister, but that was the only one I could remember. I'm too high. <laughs> but anyways, I got to get going. I got to get on the next show. So uh, if you guys want, you can follow me over to Michigan Bros Grow Show here in about uh, 10 minutes. We'll be firing it up. Uh, if not, I'll see you all next week right here uh, with all my other brothers. And uh, we'll just talk more grow. It's my favorite fucking thing. To do. Peace out, Spartan. Yep. Grows love no, you flick through the channels and Spartan's on one of them. <laughs> yeah, I want to sign off too. I got to get out of here. Um, so uh, if you guys are interested in all the listeners, you can find my IG on Instagram at rust.branding. And then there's links to uh, in my bio to both my company, Bokashi Earthworks and uh, Majestic Craft Cannabis, the cultivation place that I work at and run. Thanks for uh, coming. Good night. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Brandon, congrats on your first run there. It looked awesome. I'm sure it smells awesome. I'm sure it is awesome. I'm I'm glad you're working it good out there, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, big ups, Brandon. That's a big accomplishment, man. You should be very proud. First Legal Harvest, it's a big uh, milestone for you, and I'm proud of you, man. And I think that that whole entire community is going to benefit from whether it's sold as recreational or medicinal. medicinal it's going to benefit a lot of people and change their lives for the positive. So shout out to you, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, I just, um, you know, it was really emotional. You can see like on the video, like I was like almost in tears, you know, just because I've put in so much time and work as far as like, you know, I went to prison twice for this plant and I always had these, everybody telling me that I should stop and I shouldn't do what I love to do. And I was like, no, man, I, I just got to keep doing it. And uh, then the last time I got out, I said, I said, screw it, man. I should really just put myself out there, put myself on the line. 
and see where it goes. And that's what happened, you know? I'm really happy. And I hope this really doesn't come off as taking credit for anything because you did a lot of this, but I'm so happy to have been able to help facilitate you in that, in that way. No, that's a great thing too. Cause it was just about, I was like, I need to build community. And that's when I went down to the Hilton and then I actually had missed, missed you there, but I reached out and then we ended up talking and then we got, the, got on the cheap home grown. And then I got my own grow going again. So yeah, it was just, it, there was a lot of people that were essential into it that played, you know, small parts, but were actually really essential that it wouldn't have happened without them. So isn't it crazy how capricious and serendipitous it all is sometimes like the interactions that I've had with you, with Jack, anyone on the panel, really a lot of my own career. It's just, I'm just, and happy to see how that has progressed. For you. It's Imagine universal consciousness. I think the reason why we're all together in this is because we all kind of resonate at the same level. We all have the, the same uh, passion and, and we like to be able to share and educate it and, and just share our experiences, you know, cause we've all had different experiences and it's really important to understand that, that although sometimes we feel alone, like if you just go and talk to the next guy, man, he might know what you're going through and, and, and uh, sharing the plant can help with that, you know? So Thanks for joining us, Brandon. And I wanted to shout out uh, Spartan. I heard when I was going to fill up my water bottle, he asked what the dosi dough was. I heard you covered the GG4. So dosi dough is a uh, Girl Scout cookies phenotype called OGKB or, or OG Kush Breath, named basically after the guy that found it. And that's crossed with the face off OG. And I think we're going through the shout outs. And I heard uh, Spartan gave his, and then we just got Brandon's. Uh, and I'll give it over to Matthew next. Yeah, this was very fun. Um, I know that I kind of, I, I did a lot of self-referential stuff, but if you're interested in that kind of research with the microbiome of cannabis, pests, that sort of a thing, I have tons of free content for that because it's very important to me that people learn this sort of information. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. You can find my content on at SyncAngel on Instagram and uh, Xenthanol.com and uh, YouTube uh, channel Xenthanol where those videos I talked about and their research can be found. Well, thank you for joining us, Matthew. And I just want to say, I don't think that you are like overly uh, pushing any of your stuff. You only typically reference something if it is in relation to what we're talking about in the conversation. So I really appreciate that because you have a giant catalog of content and it's not like you're sitting here saying every single video that you have, you're just uh, when it is appropriate referencing it. And I think that's a huge benefit to everyone here in the community. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. So next up, I think I'm going to toss it over to Can Can Grow. Hey, yeah, it was uh, fun being on the uh, with the panel again. Uh, didn't have much to contribute to the um, bacterial and uh, fungi conversation because I'm a sterile guy. So it's a uh, sterile res for me and I don't run any of that. But uh, um, thanks for the chat. It was great. Anybody wants to check out what I'm doing? I got a whole ton going on in the garden right now. I think I just I just put in there five different new grow lights that I'm that I'm doing full runs with to test and uh, um, and uh, share with people some information on. And um, also got a whole bunch of pheno hunts going on. And I'm also growing some autoflowers for uh, that I've uh, started to journal on the cocoa for cannabis. Um, Autoflower challenge too. So, 
got the time going on. So if you want to check me out on YouTube or Instagram, can can grow um, and pretty much everywhere else on social media. Thanks for having me. Look forward to talking to everyone again next week. We always appreciate you, Can Can, and I, I laughed a little when you said sterile guy because I know that you have children and kids, but then you clarified and said you're res. So uh, <laughs> I just had to giggle about that to myself and share it with the rest of the panel. But uh, thank you again for joining us. We always appreciate your input, and I think that uh, your way of growing is every bit as valid as everybody else on the panel, and I love that you uh, share as much as you can about the fine details. So thank you for joining us. Next, I think I'll give it over to the American one. Yes, shout out to the panel. It's always great talking with you guys. And uh, yeah, Matthew Gates, I love your love of uh, all things uh, bugs and uh, IPM. And that's partly why I think you're so effective. It shows through that you you care about it or are interested and you're never stepping on people, but you always try and work it in, which is awesome. And, and it's needed because it infiltrates everything, you know, uh, a lot of things are interconnected. So it's a vital part of the puzzle and uh, shout out to chat and uh, thanks Greenstalk, uh, Jack Greenstalk for taking over the controls tonight and shout out to Shane. And um, I'll say grow his love now since uh, Dr. MJ ain't here, but uh, that's it, man. Have everybody have a great night. Thanks for joining us, man. And definitely uh, I'm glad you said it. Cause like you said, he is not with us this week. I just wanted to say that he's doing all right. He's been busy and uh, just couldn't make it this week. And I think we may expect him back again next week. So no worries about Dr. MJ Coco. He's doing well and uh, just trying to keep up with all of his responsibilities over there. So next up, we got Noah the Grower. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You had a great time. Um, if anybody's interested in uh, checking out what I got going on, I'm Noah the Grower with two E's on Instagram. And uh, yeah, just a shout out to all the old school guys that have been doing this for a long time. I'm uh, I'm 41. Um, I've only done one day in jail my whole life. It was for possession of weed. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, and I really, really respect all the old school guys that got looked down on by their families or friends because they thought that this was the wrong thing. Um, it's a lifestyle. A lot of people don't understand it if you don't live it. And I'm happy to be here with a lot of the people who understand it because I've been doing it my whole life. And uh, shout out to everybody that's here. And uh, thanks again for having me. Thanks for showing up and uh, giving your contributions this week. I always uh, appreciate what you got to say, even though you're soft-spoken and uh, quiet sometimes. I always appreciate trying to drag you into the conversation and get you to chime up here and there. And if you haven't already checked him out, at Noah, the T-H-E-E, Groa on Instagram. He grows some fire, really, really good-looking buds. And uh, he's really generous and kind with his time and information, too. So. Don't be afraid to leave a comment and talk to him and uh, hit him up. And uh, I didn't, I don't know if I said thank you, Tao, after you uh, gave your outros, but thank you again for joining us. And lastly, I am uh, at Jack Greenstock on Instagram and Cannabuzz. So if you want to find me, you can find me over there. I'm also on Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock. And I host my own podcast, Greenstock Talks. I've got about three episodes so far. I don't do them uh, on a consistent basis. I try to come up with a concept for an episode and just really drill that one concept and put it out when I feel like it's ready. So if I do put one out, you'll find uh, that I released it probably on Instagram first. So thank you everyone for joining. I want to give uh, Cheap Home Grow a big shout out. You can go to cheaphomegrow.com. There's all sorts of stuff on there now. Uh, you can check out this show and a back catalog of all of his other episodes. And you can also go into the consulting section. And if you want to work on a professional level, maybe get into some video calls with us and uh, make the time worth your time and our time and uh, 
it's a win-win for everybody. So we have a part of the website that's continuing to be developed and a app that is uh, potentially under work that we're trying our best to get out and make top quality for the growing community. So shout out to Shane at the Cheap Home Grow Podcast for doing all that. And shout out to everybody in the chat here for coming. So I think we're going to call it here because it's about six o'clock on the West Coast and nine elsewhere. So thank you everybody for joining. Have a great one. Growers love.